The thing about the modular buildings is they tend to be stronger seismically, so structurally they're better for earthquakes because they actually have to be designed to be transported. So they're overbuilt for the end result of them sitting on a foundation. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Invest in the West, where we talk about investing strategies, real estate topics in the western part of the United States. I'm Matt Williams. I'm here with my co-host, Nicholas Cook. Our guest today is Nathan Young with Nathan D. Young Construction and Mods PDX. He's here to discuss current building practices, but specifically modular buildings. Nathan, thanks very much for being here. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into building practices initially, and then kind of how that transpired and uh, moved into modular building. I got into construction in 1991, 16 years old, started working for a guy while I was in high school as a way to, you know, make a little extra money. Uh, Found that I really enjoyed it, went to college down in Willamette University in Salem and uh, spent four years down there doing a double degree in Latin American political development and environmental economics. Got out of school with a nice Bachelor of Science and no real <laughs> job qualifications. And back into construction. <laughs> student debt. So, no, I uh, I went back into construction because it's something that I really enjoyed. I went back to working for my boss for about a year and a half. I was 22 years old when I started Nathan D. Uh, Young Construction. And we did really well doing high-end remodels, custom homes, up until the recession that we all went through in 06 to whenever, 010, 10, 2010. Um, during that time in the recession was kind of looking at different ways to build and some of the big problems that we have with building envelope failures and whatnot and decided that uh, modular construction or a controlled environment would be a much better way to try to address some of the building issues that we currently have and have had for the last 20 years in our building environment. So I uh, got into the modular construction and started doing that pretty heavily in 2010. Uh, did several projects that were panelized and went to Canada, and then we started getting into full modular boxes that convert into larger buildings and structures. So kind of systems. You went from um, you know typical stick build to really essentially doing handling systems, doing panels first, and then full modular projects is kind of the way it sounds. Yeah, I mean, we evolved. We knew that we wanted to get into the modular, and we started with the panelized just to kind of get our heads wrapped around it because when you start moving off of a site and into a factory and you have to build specific components that are then going to go fit on site, it's it's definitely a different mindset. Um, we try to stay away from the term manufacturing because there's so many connotations about manufactured housing, but really that's what it is. I mean, it's changing your mind from being a, a, a daily contractor that's on much more of a linear progression of events to manufacturing, which allows you to work in more of a circular environment where you can be building multiple components at the same time that then come together to build the end result. Well, let's talk about a little bit about the way that uh, consumers and developers were looking at building practices and what the end goal was 20, 30 years ago versus now. I mean, those are very, very different, right? I mean, um, it's evolved and changed over the years, whether it be a pre-World uh, War II versus post-World War II um, on how big a lot size should be and what the actual amenity being provided is and what the consumer is wanting to buy. How has that changed over the last 20 years or so, just the, the focus of the consumer and the developer? 
I think now people want a lot more technology in their homes. They expect them to be better built. The irony behind that is the craftsmanship of the homes has been deteriorating for the last 30 years. Uh, when I got into the business 25 years ago, most of the guys that I were, was learning under had been in the industry their entire lives. Coming out of the recession in the 70s, they were all extremely skilled craftsmen's at every stage of the game whether it was drywall concrete framing they were all very particular knew much more than just their specific trade but were very very good at their trade and now uh over the last 30 years we've done so much subcontracting and then subcontracting within the subcontracting that you get guys that only really understand one small aspect of the building trade and don't really understand how it correlates to everybody else and so when you build everything as a layer of events and when somebody does something wrong in the very beginning at the first stage that just compounds all the way through to the end and now we've gotten really good at hiding it in the finishes but uh, unfortunately <laughs> the, the guts of the buildings oftentimes have some issues and a lot of times that's directly correlated to product integration so when you start combining products on your building envelope or your exterior that aren't necessarily designed to go together, um, you're going to get some kind of a failure point in that. You know, and, and it seems too that you know, even if you look at the buildings uh, now versus um, you know, I sell fifty to hundred houses a year, depending on the year, and I sell houses that were built in the '40s, the '50s, the '70s, and brand new homes. And there's a significant difference just in the focus. I mean, it seems like comfort and not having to do anything to adjust that level of comfort is kind of the focus now is, is are you seeing that in you know versus some of the, the houses that are a little older yeah for sure i mean i think we live in an instantaneous society where people think they're going to buy a house and never do any maintenance or never do anything to it and that's not a reality i mean it's no different than buying a car you have to change the oil you got to clean the gutters you got to clean the furnace filters you have to do certain things in these homes you can't have amazon and alexa do everything for you right I mean, <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes indeed um, i mean but definitely people we try to design systems that remove the the individual from having to control the elements of being comfortable when it comes to hvac and other amenities we try to set them up so that we really don't want you playing with the thermostat and playing with other things because if you program it correctly and you have the house built correctly, then you're not going to need to really go back and do a lot of adjustments to it. Well, which maximizes the efficiency overall, right? Um, so before we go too much further, why don't we define for our audience the difference between stick-built, modular, and manufactured? Because a lot of people that I've, di I've had this discussion with think that manufactured homes and modular homes are the same, and they are absolutely not. So tell us a little bit about the difference between those. Yeah, so... Manufactured homes are built to a completely different code standard than either modular or site built. They're both built to a HUD standard. So they're closer to your RV trailer, essentially, than they are to an actual home. Whereas when you get into a modular structure or a stick-built structure, we're held to the exact same codes on either side of the the plane there so if you're building a modular house that's going in portland oregon it's the exact same structural codes the exact same energy codes as what you're going to have if you're stick building it so they're very similar the thing about the modular buildings is they tend to be stronger seismically so structurally they're better for earthquakes because they actually have to be designed to be transported so they're overbuilt for the end result of them sitting on a foundation because they have to be so strong to be able to be 
transported down the road on a trailer and then craned into place. You know, that is interesting, too, because, um, you know, essentially mod, I guess one of the things I should ask is that um, my recollection is that you have different people inspecting this, right? I mean, you've got state folks that are inspecting the modular versus, you know, some of the city and county folks that are that are conducting the inspections on the stick bill. Is that correct? Yeah, that's been moving around a little bit. Our, our most current project actually is being inspected by the city of Portland because they wanted to come in and do their own inspections on a larger project. And uh, I think both sides of us being the modular side and the city were a little hesitant in the beginning on how it was going to go. And we've actually had a great response from them, and they've really enjoyed it once they figured it out and saw that it was no different than site building. If not, it's better because, I mean, for us on the West Coast, our buildings are always dry. You're always walking into a controlled environment. There's no dirt on the ground. There's no mud on the plywood. There's no rain coming down. Um, It's just cleaner. It's a better environment to build in. It's easier for the inspectors to get in and see everything because we build them up on cribbing so they're up off the ground. They can put a flashlight underneath them and see all the post and beam or the pre-structure and plumbing and electrical that goes underneath your floors. Everything is much more accessible. Uh, The only part that becomes a little bit more of a challenge for them in the first couple inspection processes is understanding how all of these components go together because you may not have all of the boxes built side by side the way they're going to orient on site they might be broken up in the factory Uh, but once they get that figured out it becomes a lot easier but a lot of our projects that go outside of oregon are inspected by a third party which is radco and radco sends an inspector out um, and he does all the same inspections as you would if you had a site built inspector the only difference is we just have one inspector and then with the state Uh, When we do other projects that are outside of Portland right now, they're also inspected by the state. And, again, we have one or two inspectors that we deal with on a continual basis. So we've been in business with the modulars almost 10 years, and now we're on a periodic inspection process with the state. So that means that we're held to a standard that we can do our own inspections up to a certain level, and then the inspectors come in at random times throughout the build process and verify that we're meeting all the Requirements, And then we call them in for very specific inspections that we want to have documented just for the local jurisdictions like plumbing, electrical, mechanical, pressure testing of the water lines and those type of things, which we both need for our side to make sure that we're building a qualified building. And then the local jurisdictions know that the buildings have been fully tested. Nice. Great. Well, you know, one of the questions I think a lot of people probably have, since this is a relatively newer kind of concept, at least, you know, being pushed is... Um, you know, is there a difference in quality of construction between modular and stick built? And you've touched on it a little bit. And I guess the more important thing is, you know, do you see consumers like do they understand that? Like, what's the public's perception of modular building right now? I think it varies a little bit. I mean, it's if you've watched Dwell Magazine over the last decade, uh, now you can't pick up a Dwell Magazine without seeing a modular home in it. So people are seeing these great, beautiful homes that are highly custom being built in a factory i've started to equate it to the concept of building cabinetry so 30 years ago all your kitchen cabinets were built on site we never would have thought about building high-end custom cabinets off-site and now you would never see a a high-end custom cabinet being built on site they're built in a shop because we use cad programs and different ways of measuring and we bring in all these kitchen cabinets in a million dollar home and they're all built in the factory yeah well all we're really doing is building big cabinetry components 
And so the tolerances that we build to typically are much tighter than what we would see on site. I've been framing myself for 25 years. You cannot okay. frame as tight as we frame in the factory because it's so controlled and dry and clean. And we're able to build our boxes to within an eighth of an inch of square at six seventy feet by 16 feet by wow. 11 feet tall. Um, our cabinet guys that follow behind us, I mean, typically – Everything is plumb level and square. They're setting cabinets a lot faster. Everything just works because we understand that layering effect that I talked about earlier where it really starts with the foundation, or for us it starts with the floor system being perfectly level, shot in with a transit less than a sixteenth of an inch over the entire floor system, and then you're framing your walls, and so you don't have a compound error effect, whereas when we're framing on site, you get onto a foundation. If the foundation's a little out of square, you kind of cheat your first floor, you cheat your second floor, you try to get rid of it by the time you get to the roof. But you're really just getting, you're trying to bury all the inconsistencies that yeah. exist. We don't have a foundation to sit on until we get to the site. So we make the boxes perfectly square and then set them on a foundation and basically adjust the foundation to the buildings. Yeah, so that probably gives you a foundation. You also probably aren't running into that time frame for getting the foundation to, like, cure to a level where you need it to. I mean, I know sometimes when people are building subdivisions, they might be throwing houses onto a foundation prematurely. Um, so you're kind of avoiding that by just doing that outside of, um, you know, the site itself. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about the motivation, you know, some of the – you know, current consumers, developers, a lot of the regulators, they're focused on, you know, energy efficiency. That's one of the major appeals of modular building. You know, obviously this is something you're, you're passionate about. Can you talk about a little bit more what can be achieved, you know, with modular building in regards to energy efficiency? Yeah, I mean, one of the nice things, again, I always harp on the fact that they're dry. I mean, that's such a big issue that the building is never getting wet that then when you're going into insulation, we will typically be insulating with a moisture content in our wood below 10%, whereas on-site you're allowed to have 18%. Natural wood naturally wants to be at about 12%, so that moisture has to go somewhere after you drywall, which is typically why you see nail pops and other things that will occur at a one-year period in a home as it settles and actually dries out. The other thing is with it being dry, the adhesion that you get from the tapes and the sealants that we use to try to get to a high level of energy efficiency adhere much better. So we have a a much lower failure rate of any of our bonding. Um, So there's three components that go into making an energy efficient home, and it's essentially the three principles of thermodynamics. So you have to be able to focus on, on moisture movement, air movement, and temperature movement. And so we do that through what's called an air exchange ratio, where we try to focus on how much air is infiltrating into the home from the outside or vice versa, from the inside to the outside. And the more that we can control that and lower that what we call ACH ratio down to below about a two, the more energy efficient the home gets. Again, because you're not just wasting energy out through your windows and doors and other other systems. Um, So we focus very heavily on the building science that goes into a building, Mm -hmm. which is really where the energy efficiency lies. So if you would have told me 20 years ago that I was going to be focusing on the physics of moisture movement, I never never would have really believed that that would be important in construction, whereas now that's really how I think is – on the principles of thermodynamics. We understand physics from a physical world standpoint as far as load bearing and all that very well. And now you can talk to my any one of my guys, no matter who they are, and they may not fully get it at a high level, but they're going to be able to start to talk to you about 
moisture movement, energy efficiency is the way it relates to air exchange ratios. And they don't know all the acronyms and everything, but they know why they're doing what they're doing because not just because I tell them, but because they see the end results when we start to put these buildings together. Nathan, what are the, you know, I watched um, the project, you go through a project over in St. John's where you put in seven units. And it was really interesting to me because, um, you know, one day it was, you know, uh, a hillside and and a site with a foundation. And then the next you know, three days later, you've got seven units on on the building. So the process is definitely uh, unique and something that people aren't really used to because typically if someone's building a house next to you, you've got like six to eight months construction going on and people coming and going and trucks out in front, but that's quite different. Um, tell us a little bit, you know, conceptually how that process works and what that, uh, what that uh, um, timeline might be based on the site. Yeah, so we've been working on that for quite a while. That was one of our first projects. Um, it went fairly smooth, but like anything else, when you do something for the first time, you you know you learn a lot from it. We've gotten a lot better about understanding that circular build process. So you really want to control when the site starts in relationship to when the the boxes are going to be done and ready to land to try to to minimize that time frame of end result of construction. So once the boxes are landed, to finish, which also gets into the, the original design process and what you design into those buildings so that you can try to get as much done in the factory as possible. When we first started, we were a little hesitant about um, how much we would pre-build in the factory just because it was new to us. And now we really understand that we're in total control. And so we're, we're able to pre-build our roofs, pre-build components that years ago we didn't use to pre-build. And now you can go out and install them a lot faster. There's a lot of benefits to the neighbors, to the to everybody, because you don't have trucks lined up down the street for a year. Yeah, um, uh, noise and uh. the noise. I mean, you're still going to have that at a high impact for, but for a much smaller period of time. I mean, ideally, we're trying to get that end once the boxes are land to close a building up and be out of there under three months. Wow, and and you can also handle that permitting process simultaneously, right? You can be doing ex- ex- uh, excavation and foundation building while you're building the you know walls and putting in electrical and plumbing in the factory so you've got simultaneous moves movement there right exactly yeah you're tracking on two different schedules essentially the whole time so you're trying to get up to where your foundation can be done for about seven to ten days typically to get to your cure point um, so that that foundation can cure out because it's not like a conventional house where you're going to frame a first floor and slowly load that foundation we're going to load that foundation with its entire load in one to two days and all the boxes are going to land on it and all of a sudden that foundation has to be ready to receive the entire weight of the building nice are, are there limits to um, modular building i mean size going down the road to access to get into specific sites to um, you know maybe even climate i don't know if uh, it matters if you're at 30 below versus 30 degrees versus 90 degrees or 120 degrees. So what's the, what are the limits, I guess, uh, I would say to the modular? So limits, transportation size, uh, we're limited to 16 feet wide, 72 feet long, and 12 foot 10 tall. So there's some limits in the box sizes, but typically we're going to be smaller than that. Most of the time what we do is when we have a client approach us, it needs to be in the very beginning. We do a site analysis, so we determine from our factory 
to your site what the optimal size box is for transport and also for crane settings. So we need a 30 by 30 footprint on the building site to be able to set the building with the crane. Um, and so sometimes we'll end up being down to a 15 by 60 foot box. And then what we do is have the architect work on a 15 by 60 foot grid line system to design the building so that everything fits within each one of those boxes for all of your kitchens, bathrooms, all of those other components that are going to go into your house. Um, and then we work on the transportation. As far as climate, we can modify our build process to any climate that it needs to go into. It's just a changing of of the wall systems and some of the components that go into it. So as you move from a, a hotter climate to a colder climate, you're basically adjusting the way that the moisture is going to diffuse through the wall. All right. So uh, thanks for joining us so far. We're going to take a quick break and a word from our sponsor. We'll be back with Nathan Young to discuss a little bit more of the investment side of modular building. Sleep Sound Property Management is a full-service, professional management company serving the Portland metro and Vancouver area. We give our clients back their most valuable asset, time. By delegating your property management, you'll be able to focus on what you do best while minimizing your liability and maximizing your return. Learn how we can help at sleepsoundpm.com. All right, so we're back with Nathan Young with Nathan D. Young uh, Construction and Mods PDX. Um, so we're going to basically be talking a little bit about some different things here. At the beginning, we were talking about um, some of the designs, some of the motivations for modular design, kind of how you got into it. But, you know, w- one of the things that's kind of a, a big question when it comes to the difference between modular building and, you know, standard stick-built projects uh, is really on the investment side of things, right? Because, you know, you need to have clients that want to build this product and to build something that's got to be not only affordable, but there's got to be demand for that. So you've done some projects, it sounds like, on, you know, multifamily um you know, you've built those for yourself and clients um you know what are some of the costs to build modular versus stick built and you know, you know maybe you can talk about cost per square foot or also the cost to operate and so forth so you could fill us in a little bit on that yeah so i mean there's a lot of myth myths out there that modular construction is going to be half as much money and that's just not a reality because whether i'm building on site or building in the factory if i'm ordering a vpi window it costs me about the same as it costs the guy on site. So I have the same costs for materials and the same cost for labor to a certain degree. There is some efficiencies that we get in multi-story buildings because everything we build is on the ground floor, essentially. Whether it's a second floor or third floor, we're still in the factory at, at ground floor when we're building. So we get a little bit of efficiency on that side, which helps with costs. But generally, you're going to see our costs are, are just a little bit less than site built uh depending on the project when you get into single family homes sometimes we're equal or we can be higher sometimes because we have more material that goes into our boxes again to make them strong enough to go down the road but generally the savings comes in time and 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 efficiency so the fact that you're able to build the site at the same time that you're building in the factory and then deliver those together simultaneously and speed that time to time to lease or time to own or occupy much quicker that's where a lot of the benefits and the costs are so it's definitely a paradigm shift in the way that you look at everything because you're you're changing the time frame of the build process but you're also changing the draw process so in a typical construction process your draws are fairly slow in the beginning as you're doing your excavation concrete kind of bell curve yeah framing and then you get into finishes 
with modular, your draw processes are occurring simultaneously at two different locations, so one in the factory and one on site. And we're ordering windows, doors, and cabinet deposits sometimes in our first month of build because the cabinets are going to go in a month after we framed. And so your draw process is much steeper, much quicker. Yeah. So we have to make sure that project gets done in a quick time frame or else your carry costs end up going to go crazy. An yeah. issue. So there's, I mean, that's where we've tried to work on understanding the designs a little bit better and limiting the designs um, from a constructability standpoint so that we can build them fast and put them together quickly. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I guess that brings up a good point, too, which is, I mean, how have lenders felt about the product? I mean, do they understand the product? Are there, you know, is there a collection of, like, specialized lenders that are kind of niche for this? Or is it more like the broader market is is fine lending on that? What have you seen? We've had good luck across the board with lenders once they come down to the factory and see it and understand it and understand that we can't build a building in our factory and then just ship it to somebody else. So you can't buy it, and I can't give it to Matt because it's not going to work on Matt's lot. Yeah. So their product is controlled. It's secure because we have 24-hour security. Yeah. So it's just off-site construction. And the bigger banks, uh, U.S. Bank is funding a project that we're doing right now that's uh, – 72 units mm-hmm. and they had no problem with it umqua bank has uh, completely embraced modular construction as of a couple years ago and they've understood that it's the wave of the future and they want to be financing all of our single family homes and they actually are also financing the 72 unit project um, that's affordable so yeah. it just kind of depends on the bank we have one coming up with uh, we did one with riverview we have one uh, coming up with another smaller bank in Portland. A lot of time it just takes a little bit of education process for them to see it. Mm-hmm. But again, if you go back to the Dwell magazines and the things that they're seeing across the nation, they're starting to realize that modular construction is is increasing its size significantly over the other components of the construction industry right now. Our growth pattern is expected to be in the 10 to 15% a year for the next five years. I mean, it's, a, it's an awesome. industry that's yeah. growing significantly as more people understand that it's controlled and it's a better built product. And essentially, none of us ever own our houses. The banks own the houses, right? <laughs> yeah, and then so, government owns the land. So, I mean, at the end I mean of the- <laughs> you want to, the bank wants to know that they've got a qualified product on their on their property that's not going to rot away. That yeah, and not going to have yeah. issues with. So. And, I mean, one of the things you kind of mentioned, too, is that, I mean, you've done this all over the West Coast for the most part, right? You've done this in, you know, Oregon, California. It sounds like you've done some stuff down in... Uh, you think you said Nevada? Nevada, yeah. Have you done? You've been up in Washington as well. Yep, we've been in Seattle. Yeah, and so have you? Have it, has this been pretty receptive by different you know government entities as you've gone to from state to state, or do you feel like you know there's a lot of catching up to do with other states? Or California is way ahead of Oregon. They've been doing modular for a long time, largely because their cost to build down there is significantly higher. Yeah, um, they're they're. I mean, just the logistics of getting around L.A. or San Francisco driving, if you're a tradesman, could take you two hours to get to a job site. Very true. Yeah, I didn't even thought about that. I mean, <laughs> Seattle's point, very yeah. similar to that. Seattle's done quite a bit of modular. Um, it's just it depends on the locale, and but most of the jurisdictions are well aware of it and haven't had a lot of issues with it. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the states that we work in have a, a a modular division for their state building codes that we work through. So. Um, and we have not had any issues in other areas. Okay, so you're taking clients like if somebody were to call you up, you know, somewhere in the western area. I mean, you're 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 working all over the place. It sounds like. 
Yeah, we'll pretty much work in anything west of the Mississippi. It just depends upon transportation costs. That's where it starts to be an issue. So, sure. I mean, we will build in L.A. and Las Vegas, but the thing is our transportation costs are fifteen to $20,000. And as you're seeing more people start up smaller factories like ours down in L.A., we'll typically refer clients down to them versus us trying to take on the project. As we as we, as there's more people that are qualified coming into the industry, yeah. we've also seen a lot of businesses fail in the last 15 years, a lot of startup modular companies, um, oftentimes because they're heavily funded from high tech and you have people coming in that are computer gurus thinking they're going to change the construction industry. Yeah. <laughs> the construction industry doesn't move very fast. Very true. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, it sounds like there's more public support for this. There's more government support for this. Are there tax credits associated with efficiency or other factors that, you know, someone should consider as an investor, somebody who might be looking at modular development? Well, there's tax credits that come from, like, energy trust or uh, other um, entities that are giving you the same incentives that you can get when you're building site built, but it's just that you can work that into your process a little bit better. Um, again, we're hitting higher metrics on our energy efficiencies by being dry and controlled. And so you're able to reach more of the platinums versus the gold standards, which gives you a little bit of a bump on your on your rebates back. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also have to think about long-term carrying costs and operational expenses. Yeah. So if you, have a, if you have a multifamily building, your biggest hit to your bottom line is operational expense. It's the only thing that you can control that's going to change what the value of that building is over the long term. So the more that you can focus on what the energy efficiencies are that are going to be a payback to you, the better off you're going to be in the long run. Now, some investors will say, well, I'm making all the tenants pay the utilities. What do I care? So what we say is, well, if you turn those utilities into your own utility basis and you charge them a utility payback, then all of a sudden you can get a little bit of a bump off of that energy efficiency. Yeah. Well, I mean, pretty much any dollar that goes to utility is money that you can't charge in rent, right? Like if you have a total amount of money that somebody is going to spend on housing, Say your tenant's going to spend two thousand bucks a month on housing, and their utility cost eats up you know three hundred of that. Then your max rent is going to be seventeen hundred, right? So if you can save some of those dollars and redirect them, that's a great point. And you know, it kind of leads into my other question. So I come from the property management side of the world, right? So we do multifamily residential management. So one of the big questions comes down to you know the advantages of maintenance or disadvantages um, when it comes to modular or you know, how that affects something on like, have you seen some of these assets go back on? I mean, this is a new thing, but you've been doing it 10 years. Have you seen some of these assets come online and then people sell them to, you know, buyers that are perceiving the value to still be there? The buildings that we've built, we still own. We haven't sold anything yet. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) We've been holding them (laughs) and just watching them. Yeah. Uh, We did two different buildings in St. John's, both of them with different mechanical systems and different energy efficiency levels so that we could try to uh, verify our own our own science essentially and and make it work with our own money to, before we are selling it to clients. So we've learned a lot about those buildings. On our single family side, um, I'm not aware of any of our clients that have sold their, their single families yet. They all still are occupying them as mm-hmm. far as I know. Yeah. Um, but really once the buildings are done, most people would never know they're modular. I mean, if I took you to my two buildings in St. John's, the floor plans on them are actually very, very similar, and the building styles are completely different. One's a modern, very modern-looking structure, and one's a craftsman that looks like it was built in 1950. 
Hmm, so interesting. it's it. There's a lot of uh, ability to change the the design, um, but essentially you wouldn't know. I mean, so it's hard to say. I don't know that you, as a buyer or a property manager, would know the difference between a modular building and a site build. If I was to take you to them, I'd have to explain to you that it was modular, and you probably wouldn't believe me. <laughs> Very good point. Very good point. Great. You know, Nathan, when we um, we worked together a little bit on the six unit and the seven unit uh, that you've got there in St. John's, and I just want to bring home this point because I think it's really important to the audience. You know, one of the things that we really focused on was having that spread or the opportunity to do an all inclusive rent. Um, much to Nick's point, that if they've got a budget of two thousand dollars a month and they'll spend it, they may as well be putting it in the landlord's pocket. Um, if we can build a more efficient building, and we. We kind of looked at the cost of that, what it would cost uh, to build a high-end building, and then offset that by having an all-inclusive. Um, are you seeing the tenants um, drawn to the new build and the all-inclusive, and are you seeing investors understanding that concept when they're looking at a high-end product and being able to say, okay, this is sustainable? It'll be, you know, a dollar today is uh, worth more than a dollar tomorrow, right? I mean, if you spend it today, 20 years from now, if you still have that same energy efficiency uh, and a great building, you know, you're going to be in a better spot. Are you seeing investors see that? I mean, you're working on a 72 unit building now, so someone must have, right? Yeah. I mean, we're starting, we're, uh, again, the reason why we're holding our buildings is to try to track the data over a long term and verify that the systems work. The all-inclusive rent in the very beginning when we built the first building that we call the Edison over in St. John's, there was no new product in St. John's. And so we were able to come into the market, and, and people received it very well. By the time we did Willamette, which was our second build, there's been quite a few units that have come online. We actually saw rents in the, in the entire neighborhood drop a little bit because the new product comes on, and they falsify the rents in the area to get them leased up. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, I, I think that we the concept is a very good concept unfortunately we're also fighting a society that's instantaneous and so they don't really see the difference between paying one rent and not having to pay utilities it it doesn't always register with them it definitely takes some education to the tenant to understand that no this is the only bill you're going to have is your rent Um, we have been very fortunate once the people have gotten into them we've had a lot of long-term tenants so most of our units uh, have we've got several that have been in there since the beginning that haven't left and they say they're not going to leave. I mean, I'm sure they will at some point. <laughs> um, so I think some people get it and some people don't like anything else. It's a new way of running. Uh, 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 it's a new way of looking at things. Well, you know, the environment in those units are are pretty amazing too. I mean, the sound barrier you can't hear anything, you can't smell anything from from an adjacent unit. Um, the comfort level is all there. Every, everything is set up for you. Everything is, you know, brand new. Uh, um, it, it really is a good experience, and I can, you know, say that firsthand because I'm very familiar with these projects. So, I mean, that is something that I've never walked into a new building that was stick built and felt as though everything was as tight as it was. And for uh, someone moving into multifamily, that's a big deal, right? From an, from an experience perspective. It's that's one of the benefits of the modulars with the boxes is is you talk to some people and they're concerned about the cost of the floor and the ceiling assembly because each box has one. But the nice thing is nobody's walking on your ceiling. So you don't hear the tenants up above. And then the separation from box to box going down the, the horizontal line essentially on each floor means that the sound isn't transferring from unit to unit like you're saying. So, I mean, there's definitely some benefits that we get. We call that the STC ratio, sound transmission coefficient. 
Um, not to get too deep, but <laughs> <laughs> I'll put on, that I'll on a ten to flyer next that time. Be like, oh, would you like CRSTC ratio? <laughs> There'll be a test after this. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's definitely. I mean, our our focus uh, when we were building those buildings was really understanding that the purpose of building a, a building is to focus on the five senses of human nature. So I don't want to smell you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to see you. Right? I mean, I, I want to be in my own space when I'm in my own space. And that's true of, of single family or multifamily. We try to focus on those things because that's what's really the purpose of us not living in a cave. Yeah. Well, you know, we've talked a little bit about single family all the way up to 72 units at this point. Is there a, an ideal size or number of units or um, an ideal client maybe where this really makes sense? Or, you know, maybe an area where it doesn't make sense, you know, at X number of stories, you probably should be doing something else. Or at uh, X size, you should not be building modular. Yeah, the 72 unit that we're doing uh, was our, is definitely our largest project to date. Um, we found that as long as the designs work really well, uh, we feel like 100 units would be attainable without a problem at all. Again, focusing on the design and the way that they're set up so that there's some continuity that exists within them. I'm a firm believer that every single building that you walk into, 80% of every buildings are the same based on type. So, I mean, if you have a single family or you have a multifamily, 80% of those are all the same. 20% are the accoutrements or the design elements that we add to them. So the more that we start to focus on that 80% in our design process, uh, the better off we are. We have a very, very good architecture firm that we work with called Base Architecture and Design run by Keegan and Drew. Um, they've, Keegan's been working on modular designs ever since I did the Willamette building. He was in charge of that building. And so he designs every building from a modular standpoint with the understanding, which is my golden rule, that nobody should ever be able to know that it was modular. So it's the same rule that we had when we were doing high-end remodels. You can always tell a botched remodel by the roof and the stairs. And you can always <laughs> tell a modular building by poor design, right? So there's a lot of times where he pushes me on on what I need to do in that build to make sure that nobody will know that it's modular when it all goes together. And and I push him on making sure the design is going to be something that is going to look cool and be good when it's done. Well, and we talked a little bit about how the, uh, the modular market in general is growing. Where do you see it going from here? I think in the next 10 years, you're probably going to see more shops like mine all up and down the West Coast. I mean, with all of us trying to take a 500-mile radius and basically control that section of the market, there's not a ton of efficiency in transporting boxes 2,000 miles. Um, and then you're going to have you have to be you have to have shops that are set up that can be that can modify to different needs so we have the ability to do everything from adus to 100 unit apartment buildings based upon the client and what what's going on in the marketplace we found that trying to get into some affordable housing kind of can be a good streamline to keep the factory moving all the time because you need production happening because you have a large overhead and then you do the custom stuff on the side, not necessarily on the side, but in a different realm of the factory where you're doing more your long-term custom builds. We're pushing out the 72 units in about 36 units every two and a half months. So they're moving very, very quickly. There's not a lot of uh, build time for those to happen. So there's not a lot of time to be modifying stuff or changing things. 
when we do a high-end custom single-family home, we'll typically a lot more like four months because you're still going to have the client come down there and do walkthroughs and see the space and feel the space and maybe want to make a couple changes. Um, that's one of the things that's definitely a lot different about modular versus site built is things happen very fast. And so you have to keep the client involved and make sure that they've seen the project up front before you start building it, which is one of the beauties of where we're at with architecture now with um, Revit and 3D modeling and BIM and all of those other things. Clients can kind of walk through the space before it's ever built. Um, so, and we can walk through it as well and kind of see where the where the, the problems might lie and try to adjust them long before we're going to start. I've always told Keegan and Drew, is a quick print build process. When we print, we're going to build. We're not printing out the plans like we would on a site-built project and kind of think about the build every day as we're going because too many things are happening at once. Again, we're ordering products, windows, doors, cabinets, before we even start framing these projects at times, and then we're double-checking dimensions and putting everything together. Wow, and, and it sounds like you're churning out 125 units a, a year. Roughly. Well, this year we'll just about hit, uh, yeah, we'll be right around 100 units this year. Wow. So a lot of the focus has been kind of just on talking about the West Coast. I mean, do you think this trend is going to continue throughout the country? Do you see this something happening globally? I mean, what's your take on that? It's definitely a global market. I mean, um, there's there's modular manufacturers all over the world right now. I mean, China's leading the industry is in high-rises and steel components, with wood construction, which is typically what we do, we're limited to five stories. Yeah. When you get into steel, you can get into different type of structures, get into high rises. So I think you've, I mean, you've, China, they put up like a, I forget what it was, 60 stories or something in a very short, like a week, two modular? weeks. Modular? Yeah, it was all modular. Holy moly. Wow. Um, <laughs> now I don't know if it was Ikea or how it went. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think what we're seeing is, is the industry is changing a lot and i always kind of correlate the building industry to cars if you look at cars 100 years ago the model t was built on an assembly line all done by hand right it was Mm -hmm. all still somebody just working at each one of the stations as the car was being built now the cars that we drive fully built by robots there's very few human interactions that occur you take the building industry we're still running the same tools we were 100 years ago Maybe they've got a battery in them instead of a cord. <laughs> exactly. But we haven't really advanced much as far as our technology goes. The more that we can implement manufacturing into it and start to think about the components that go into a building, pre-build them, and then build off of those components, the better off we're going to be. A lot of that's limited by the architects. We give new architects these wonderful drawing capacities with BIM, building information modeling, and Revit, and they push it to the nth degree Instead of thinking about components that have already been built and already there, they like to redesign things every single time. So yeah. every single building that you walk into right now is an individually unique building that will never be built again. There's no other industry in the world that does what we do on a daily basis. Every other business in the world builds a prototype, spends a million dollars on it, and figures out how to build it for $20,000. Yeah. We're an industry that's asked to price something out, figure out what's going to go into it, labor, material, and time on something that's never been built before and will never be built again. Yeah, not very efficient. And architects, you know, sometimes they want just something that's going to look pretty on their website, you know, and they're not really thinking about it from the build side or the efficiency side or even the end consumer side. So, uh, yeah, I can see that being an issue for sure. 
All right, Nathan, I really appreciate you being here. Congratulations on the success for sure. We're going to get into a few personal questions. And you didn't know about this, but this is how it works. Deep, <laughs> deep personal questions. Very deep. Uh, so let, let's start out, you know, has there been an aha moment um, that you've had in the past year that's changed the way you've looked at your career or your company or the industry or personal life for that matter? Just an aha moment that has, has impacted you. Uh, I think finally getting this 72 unit project going. I mean, we were working on that for two and a half years because it's affordable housing. So we were talking about doing it and it's a, and thinking about doing it and then actually getting into the process of building it. We had never built something that large before or in that short of a time frame. Um, and it, it was definitely scary at certain levels. I mean, I know that my lead guys were all very concerned about <laughs> how we were going to get this done in such a short time frame, all of our subs. Um, but after we delivered the first phase, which was 36 boxes, I think we all sat back and realized that the system works. We know the system works. We know that we can do this. We know that we can ramp it up. Um, I have really good people that work with me and work around me that are motivated and dedicated to doing this at every level. And that goes all the way down to our supply chains from our lumber guys to our electricians to Platt Elect. I mean, you name them, everybody is focused on trying to figure this out. And when we did this project and had heads of the companies of Warehouser and Par Lumber come down there and everybody that walks in goes, this is the future. This is you're doing the future. That's when you're like, OK, we're going to keep trugging along. But I mean, there's a lot of ups and downs financially, mentally. I mean, there's there were days in 2018 where I'm like, if we don't get this project going, I'm shutting the doors. This just doesn't work. And now we kind of feel like, OK, we have enough steam to keep pushing this thing forward. It's going to work. It's just a matter of time. But yeah, there's been some, I mean, there's been some days where you wonder if, why I got rid of the remodel business. <laughs> yeah, I was doing really, really well. <laughs> nice. Makes sense. Can you, uh, can you tell us about a ritual or an important ritual, I should say, that you have and do every day? I would say probably, I mean, every morning I get up about five o'clock, I take my dog for a walk. I've got a wonderful German shepherd that I've had for a year and a half now. We go get a cup of coffee at Starbucks, uh, and I just I take a moment and drive to the shop. I make sure that I don't have my phone on in the morning. I don't like to be distracted when I'm just kind of thinking about the day. Uh, I'm a firm believer in, in planning and executing. So, like, yesterday is a good example of that. I had three jobs that had to be done because I'm leaving town today. My lead guy was at the shop getting stuff ready. We had to set a whole bunch of windows before we, I was going to leave yesterday at the end of the day. I didn't get there till 1, and the guys are like, there's no way we're setting all these windows. And I go, hey, we're going to do this. Just <laughs> don't think about what we're not going to do. Think about what we're going to do. We were setting a window every 12 minutes. We were out wow. of there by 4 o'clock. Nice. Wow. That's teamwork, man. That's teamwork. It's dedication. It's, it's, not un, it's, not, it's not seeing failure. It's seeing success, right? And just knowing that if everybody does their job and everybody focuses on it, we're going to get done. We're going to get through it. And then breaking it up into small little components so that one guy's doing one task and just goes ahead and preps all the windows. And another guy's just doing the next set of prep. And then the third and fourth guys are setting the windows and putting them in. And then somebody's going behind and doing the next task and breaking it up so that no one person feels overwhelmed because everybody's working together. And when that system starts rolling and everybody's going really fast, it's fun. 
And it, it gets, I mean, guys enjoy it because at the end of the day, they're like, I thought we were going to be here till six. Yeah. And yeah. It, they look at their watch and they're like, it's four o'clock. It's actually early. We don't get off till 430. You, you had time for a beer. <laughs> I had time for a beer. <laughs> there you go. How, how do you measure success? Well, that's a tough question. I mean, some people would say financially. I don't, I, I think financial is, is a secondary result to being successful i think success is when is when you can change people's minds with what we're doing and people can can walk in and and accept it and understand it and see that what we're really doing is is better than what they ever would have thought it was going to be and uh, we're working with walsh on this affordable project and i know that they were very hesitant in the beginning but they were also huge advocates i mean they've been phenomenal to work with all the way down the line um some of their superintendents in the beginning were definitely skeptical of how you know there's how are these hacks in these factories going to put anything together that's going to fit on a foundation and as they started watching the build process and seeing it in the factory they they started to realize that these are very controlled very tight built buildings and when they all landed on the foundation and fit within an eighth of an inch they were like okay i get it (laughs) So, I mean, I think success is changing people's minds and seeing that the future is coming. Awesome. If you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be? Adam Smith. All right. Heck, yeah. Throwing out that. You're talking about Economist? Yeah. Okay. I can appreciate that. Wealth of Nations. Yeah. I, yeah. There you go. That's a thick book. I would actually like a double dinner with him and Karl Marx, because I think the two of them together. <laughs> There's a boxing match? Yeah, yeah would fight be. to the death at the end. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Another uh, really critical question, possibly the most important question that we will ask you today, which is whiskey or wine? I'd probably go whiskey. All right. Good man. You have, you have one in particular you like? Pendleton. Is that right? That's your go-to? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the economic side of me says Buffalo Trace is just as good as just about any of them for the price point, but I've been really enjoying Whistle Pig recently. That's a little more on the There's a much deeper side, conversation we can talk about. Uh, okay, I, I won't go down the uh, rabbit hole. Then. <laughs> I think any whiskey maybe is probably the better answer. I don't know if you want that to be the answer. Ah, uh, you're right. <laughs> with, there are some bad ones. Any whiskey with no hangover. How yeah. about that? Uh, well, thanks again for coming in and joining us, Nathan. Really appreciate it. Um, you know, how can uh, the audience get a hold of you if they're interested in one of your products or just learning more? Yeah, so we have a website, modspdx.com. Uh, and then in my email is nathan at ndyinc.com. And my cell is 503-710-0658. I'm not a fan of email. So if you want to get a hold of me, give me a call on the old-fashioned phone. Nice. Well, thanks again for coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you all for joining us today. If you find the show valuable, we have two favors to ask. The first, please subscribe. The second, would you give us a review? The more subscribers, the more reviews we have, the better the show and the better the guests. Until next time, invest in the West.